10-3 is brought to you by Odyssey Golf. I gotta say, this is a stroke of genius. The new Stroke Lab putters from Odyssey are engineered to build a better stroke. Odyssey completely rebalanced the putter by using a multi-material shaft that moved weight towards the head and the grip. You'll feel the difference immediately. And with every putt, you'll actually be building a better stroke. And a better stroke is what makes more putts. The new Stroke Lab from Odyssey, the number one putter in golf. Learn more at odysseygolf.com. China is currently facing scrutiny for its actions against protesters in Hong Kong, but that isn't the only human rights crackdown raising concern. In the northwest province of Zhejiang, millions of people from a Muslim minority group known as Uyghurs have been detained in what the government calls re-education camps, but some commentators call concentration camps. Uyghur students in Canada are fearful about the fate of their families back home and what could happen to them if they eventually have to return to their country. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. We look at the treatment of Uyghurs in Zhejiang province, how it is affecting the students here, and why they are speaking out. Please speak out about this show, tell all your friends about us so they can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Hey, it's Dave, and I want to tell you about my new favorite podcast from Recode, Land of the Giants, and it's about the most powerful tech companies of our time. The first season is The Rise of Amazon, and it's hosted by Recode senior correspondent Jason Del Rey. Every Tuesday, Jason tackles how Amazon is changing our world from Amazon Prime to Alexa to robots. It's a riveting, insightful look at a company that's become so important, but whose impact we don't fully understand. So listen and subscribe to Land of the Giants, The Rise of Amazon for free on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app from Recode and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Jacob Hoytema is a reporter with the Ottawa Citizen. So Jacob, explain for me kind of broadly, who are the Uyghurs? Well, they are an ethnic group that live in China, specifically in the western part of China in a province called Xinjiang. There are about 11 or 12 million of them. And ethnically, they're closer to, they're they're a Turkic people, like similar to other Central Asian countries that border China on the west there. And they've got a culture that's pretty different from Han Chinese, Han Chinese being the majority ethnic group in China. So the Uyghurs, they've got a separate language that's different from Mandarin. They've got kind of a unique style of architecture. They've got their own celebrities there, for example. And also um, important to this story is that they are mostly Muslim, whereas, uh, you know, that makes them a minority, religiously speaking, in China. But they're a, a plurality or a majority in Xijiang province, correct? Uh, yeah, official numbers vary, I think, because there are also Han Chinese people living in Xinjiang, but mm-hmm. they certainly consider themselves to be sort of the indigenous population there in Xinjiang. So this is a group that we've seen more reporting on uh, over the last several months, internationally speaking. Why is it that we're starting to to see or hear the name Uyghurs more often? Well, it's because of the uh, because of the camps, because of the re-education centers, as they're called by the by the Chinese government. So for some backgrounds, there have been already for decades, for a long time, tensions between the Uyghurs and between the Chinese government, between the Han Chinese population more broadly, you could say, where the Uyghurs, you know, they consider themselves to be a unique ethnic group. They want more autonomy. There's a strong separatist um, strain among Uyghurs, you could say. 
And so that, that has all sort of led to tension where there have been violent incidents, there have been riots. It's all sort of led to the Chinese government cracking down on the Xinjiang region as a whole. You know, it's kind of the surveillance state has really taken over there, but they've also started this program, as I say, with the re-education centers where an unknown number of Uyghurs, possibly up to 3 million, are being held in the re-education centers without trial, without necessarily having committed any crime, just so that the Chinese government, it would seem, can exact more control over the region. You say re-education centers or re-education camps, but these ostensibly are almost like prisons or labor camps, correct? These, like they can't leave freely, right? Yeah. Uh, the Uyghurs that you can speak to here in Canada, they'll refer to them often as concentration camps. Mm-hmm. So they're not, you're not allowed to leave until the organizers of the camp say you can leave. There's reports that conditions in the camp are terrible, reports of physical and psychological torture. So yeah, it's not really like, a, not like going to summer camp or anything. Now you mentioned Uyghurs in Canada. You, you came to this story, uh, by talking to some uh, Uyghur students who are at Canadian post-secondary institutions. How did you get in touch with these people? Well, I've, I've written kind of from the perspective of Uyghurs in Canada before. So before I was with the Ottawa Citizen, I had written a story uh, looking not for students, but just for people maybe who had immigrated here or sort of the Uyghur community, because there is what's known, I guess, as the Uyghur diaspora, where they kind of live all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a few thousand here in Canada and in the United States and then in a lot of Middle Eastern countries as well. And so I wanted to sort of see what the impact was on their community. And then through there, I heard about these students who were kind of feeling trapped, that they can't go home for fear that they're going to be sent to the camps. They're cut off from their family in a lot of substantial ways. And so they're kind of just stranded here in Canada, for lack of a better term. And they'd be here on a student visa and I imagine at some point that visa would run out and they would have to return home. What what have they told you about how they're feeling about that? Yeah, that's certainly one concern for them. They So they came here on Chinese passports and with student visas, which, as you say, both of those documents expire. Some of them, they still have a few years left on that. So for them, it's not really top of mind. But there are a few, certainly. I spoke to one student who's already going through the proceedings of trying to renew a passport because it's going to expire. The problem is that when they go to a Chinese consulate here in Canada, they're told they have to return to Xinjiang to go through the bureaucratic process of renewing their documents or whatever, which obviously, as I said, they don't want to do because they there have been reports of people, you know, as soon as they get back to China that they're sent to the camps or they're questioned or they're punished in some other way. So uh, what a lot of Uyghurs are doing are, is applying for asylum, applying for refugee status here in Canada. As we know about the Chinese regime, they don't exactly respond kindly to criticism, especially public criticism, criticism in the media. Right. How was it that you were able to get these students to speak to you? And why did they feel that they needed to speak to you, even with the concern that that reprisal could be taken against their family? Well, yeah, it was through a lot of sort of shields of anonymity. Like, so I, I, I've given them all pseudonyms. I don't want to give any identifying information about what schools specifically that the students that I spoke to are going to. Uh, because as you say, there have been cases where Uyghurs speaking to media in other parts of the world, then, you know, they fear that their family can be punished or they might lose contact with their family who are still living in Xinjiang. And so um, why, why do they want to talk about it? Well, yeah, so they... You know, one of the people I spoke to said that, you know, he said, I wish I could be joining these protests on Parliament Hill. I wish I could be speaking to the media more freely. But the only, you know, I just fear for my family. I don't want, I don't want them to 
come across any trouble or come across any punishment. So it, for them, it is important that other people living in Canada and living around the world understand what it is they're going through, but they just don't feel, you know, obviously they, they want to keep their family safe as their first priority. What is the concern about their families? Could it be that their family could be taken to a re-education camp if they're not already there, or if they are there, that they could be subject to physical punishment? Yeah, exactly. So th- it's even for the people who are not living in the camps, and as I said earlier, numbers vary for how many how many people are living in the camps. The U.S. State Department said it's about 3 million. Other people have been saying closer to 1 million. But as I say, for even the people who are not living in the camps, life is extremely tense in uh, in Xinjiang for the Uyghurs. It's like walking on eggshells, basically. The It's a very heavy police presence there, very heavy surveillance state, and especially for the students living here in Canada who are communicating with their family who are living back there. The, the most popular way to do it is with the app WeChat, uh, a social network in China. Mm-hmm. WeChat is heavily monitored by the Chinese government. And so when they're having video chats with their family, it's not like they can talk about, oh, how are things doing there? Are you afraid you're going to be sent to the camps? You know, because they they don't want to be seen as being critical or, you know. So the, the students describe for me how their conversations with their family are virtually meaningless you know they'll talk for five minutes it'll be very surface level how are you doing i'm fine is school going okay yeah school's fine okay bye i'll talk to you later and it's like not very frequent they can tell that their family's worried so for the students i spoke to here that was that's like it's driving them crazy you know not being able to speak to your family really in any in a in a meaningful way and what have the students told you about what it takes to get sent to the camps you were mentioning that some of these people have they haven't committed any crime. Why are they being sent to these re-education camps? The Uyghurs have, it's a very tense relationship with the Chinese government. So from the Chinese government perspective, and as I'll, I'll mention again, that there have been incidents of violence where, you know, there have been violent protests in cities in Xinjiang that Uyghurs have taken part in. And then there was in 2014, for example, there was an incident where four Uyghurs were convicted uh, by the Chinese government of, of having killed 30 people in a knifing incident in a train station in another Chinese province. Mm-hmm. So from the Chinese government perspective, the reason for these camps and the reason for sending people there is counterterrorism. They use, so for, there's a, a document that was produced by the Chinese government and which is on the website of the Chinese embassy here in Ottawa, which, you know, it uses language that's similar to language we might've been hearing over the last two decades with the war on terror, fighting radical Islam, that kind of thing. Um, they're saying they're trying to, take out or remove this, this separatist sympathies among the Uyghur population and, you know, violent tendencies, that kind of thing. But for the students I spoke to, they say it's not everyone is like that. One of them said to me, you know, some Uyghurs will get frustrated and they'll do something stupid. And then that means that the government cracks down on all the rest of us. Well, yeah, I mean, you raise an interesting, interesting point. And, and I'm curious if any of the students address this, the idea that, yes, there may be separatist sentiment among some Uyghurs, but to the extent that the Chinese government imprisons millions of people because of a sentiment among some of the population seems heavy handed. And I know that sounds silly to have to point that out about the Chinese regime. Yeah, it's almost ludicrous to think about. There was a BBC sort of short documentary where a journalist with just this past summer was allowed to visit the camps. And it was heavily, you could tell that the the, the Chinese government had been prepared for this visit. It, they were it was a very rehearsed, you could say, 
Um, they were only showing the best side of the camps. They were very prepared to make sure the, the inmates were looking happy and stuff. But one of, one of the people who was interviewed in this documentary, one of the people running the camps said that from their perspective, it's like, they, oh, we know these people are violent. We know that they're prone to become terrorists or prone to do something violent. So this is a preventative measure, which obviously goes very much against concepts of, you know, justice or, you know, it's, it's ludicrous to think about, as I said. Is this part of a broader anti-religious sentiment by the Chinese government? Or this feels specifically targeted to this population? I wouldn't even necessarily say anti-religious. It's more just cracking down on any, any group or organization that's seen to be critical or seen to be hostile towards the Chinese government. So it's a lot of the same tactics we've seen used in Tibet, you know, there was just, and of course there was the incident with the Falun Gong here in Ottawa just earlier this summer. An expert that I quoted in my piece, Mr. Burton, he says it's all part of a very coordinated campaign on the part of China to solidify support for the government, both within China and then, you know, in other, other places around the world, which is what part of trying to silence Uyghurs around the world is all part of, you know. What do the students hope that the international community could do? Or is it just about raising awareness so the world knows about what's going on in China? Yeah, well, certainly they have they have some pretty specific ways that they want other governments to help. So the, just last year, there was uh, Mehmet Toti, a man I quote in my piece, and who was a founding member of the Uyghur Canadian Association. He was asking the government to apply Magnitsky law sanctions against Chinese official. And the Magnitsky law, just very quickly, that's it's legislation passed by parliament in the last couple of years that would place sanctions on individuals who are seen to have abused human rights or be corrupt, that sort of thing in foreign governments. Mm-hmm. And so that there are some Uyghurs who are requesting that Canada use that legislation against Chinese officials. They want Canada to speak out more strongly against the Chinese government. I mean, Canada has, Canada has spoken out about this. Uh, Christia Freeland has mentioned this with Chinese officials in meetings and Trudeau also, when he met the Chinese premier last year, he brought it up. But, you know, you, the, from the Uyghur's perspective, they don't consider it to be strong enough. And they also, on another front, they want protection. They want asylum in these other countries. So there are a couple countries, Germany and Sweden, I think, are the only ones that I mentioned in my piece. But they have said, we're not going to deport any Uyghurs because we know that they're going to face punishment or being sent to the camps or whatever when they get sent back to China. Canada has not said anything like this. So while, granted... A lot of Uyghurs have been granted asylum and refugee here in Canada. There are some, uh, Mehmet Toti says, when I spoke to him, he says he is aware of some who have been sent back because their refugee claims were not accepted. Because, just because of the way it works, that every individual person needs to apply for asylum and then it's judged on each individual basis whether that person gets to stay in the country. So the, the Uyghur students I spoke to, they just want some sort of sense of security that they're going to be able to stay here, that they're not going to be sent back to the camps. Is there a sense that Canada could take an approach similar to uh, the approach taken with Yazidis uh, in relation to ISIS and offering them kind of blanket protection? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, as I said, that's that's one of the things they're asking for is just a guarantee for Uyghurs as a whole that they're not going to be sent away. So for some of the students, like their, their passports are coming close to expiring or their visas or whatever. So for, for some of them, that is front of mind. But for most of the students I spoke to, that almost like takes a backseat to just the stress of living every day, not really knowing what your family is going through, not really knowing how they're doing, you know, just sort of feeling alone here in Canada. The Uyghur students try and support each other in the cities that they live in, but it is 
I mean, you can understand how it would be a very isolating position to be in. Now, I, looking at this this broadly and, and and the treatment of the Uyghurs in China, I know that the term genocide or cultural genocide in Canada is one that comes with a lot of particular political concerns. Um, is there any question uh, from the people you spoke with that that is a term that's rightly applied in the case of the Uyghurs? Uh, well, yeah, Charles Burton, whom I spoke to, who is he's advised the Canadian government in the past on China policy. He he says this is clearly amounts to cultural genocide. I know a lot of um, a lot of people in the United States have also used that term. As as you say, there's sort of a lot of requirements that are that need to be met, I suppose, before you can use a label like that. And on that, we talk about you know an estimated three million people in camps. Um, it is tough to get information out of China. Are there reports of any deaths tied to these camps? Yeah, there have been reports of deaths in the camps, as well as just reports of physical and psychological torture for inmates who don't go along with the curriculum that's been laid out. So the curriculum of not being allowed to practice Islam, not being allowed to speak the Uyghur language, and having to read and produce propaganda materials for the, for the regime. What is the experience in Canada for the students you talk to? Is it kind of a, a shared experience? Do they communicate with one another? How does that work? Yeah, well, as I say, it's well difficult for them to speak out publicly on things like social media, for example, or to advocate or to take part in you know demonstrations or that sort of thing. But they do have ways of finding each other and sort of speaking to each other about you know, what, what's going on, sharing with each other about the troubles of keeping in touch with their family back home. And for them, it's, while it is a very isolating experience, they're sort of able to share in that, I suppose. You know, I, some of the people I spoke to, a lot of them say they're having nightmares, you know, nightmares of things like the police or being watched by cameras, that kind of thing, just from having to think about everything that's going on in China. One student I spoke to said he's been attending regular counseling sessions here just from the stress of having to worry after his family all the time. In China, and especially in Xinjiang province, there is concern that the state is heavily monitoring the activities of the Uyghur people, cameras, uh, agents of the state, things of that nature. Are these students in Canada concerned that um, Chinese nationals are surveilling them here? Well, yeah, absolutely. As I said, they, they're very reluctant to post anything on social media. They're extremely careful about what they say or, or even show on video to their family when they're in video chats. They have to be really careful, really, you know, live a really subdued life um, where they, they're not critical at all of the Chinese governments. They're just seen to be well-behaved, I guess you could say with quotation marks around that, you know. There was, there was one student I spoke to who said when he was speaking with his father, his father asked him to take a picture with Han Chinese students here in Canada so that he could send it back to Xinjiang and his father could show that to Chinese officials there and say, look, my son is being well-behaved. He's, he, you know, interacting with Han Chinese students while he's abroad. That must definitely be, you know, another level to, to being an international student. People come here to study and are in an unfamiliar country and just have to... to adapt to day-to-day -day life, but to add on top of that, the fear of surveillance or the fear for their family back home, that must be definitely trying for these, these kids. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a whole, it's like you're faced by burdens on two sides almost, you know. All right. Well, it is a, you know, 
Very troubling to see uh, a population of people treated in such a fashion and definitely a fascinating story. Jacob, thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Dave. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Additional production from Elizabeth Maver. Thanks to my guest, Jacob Hoytema. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>